mind that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt. Who am I? Welcome to Who Am I? with Pastor Greg Tyra of Harvest Chapel in Williamsport, Indiana. We're glad you could join us as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today's lesson is one in which we know you'll be enlightened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to Pastor Greg as we launch today's lesson on Who Am I? Pastor Greg is known to weave words of warning about the times we're in into the fabric of his weekly teachings. So I, too, am going to do this. But I'm going to do it a little differently. I'm going to do it up front before starting today's teaching. But before I begin, the reason I want to present this prophecy update, if you will, is that Greg, I, and many others believe that we're in the last moments of human history. And if we keep our eyes and ears open, instead of worrying when these things begin to happen, we can, as Jesus said in Luke, straighten up and lift up our heads because our redemption is drawing near. So before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, first we acknowledge that you are God Almighty, the great I Am, name above all names, creator of heaven and earth. And with this in mind, we want to say that there are many things that we're thankful for. This day, your blessings, grace, and mercy, the freedom to freely get together to study your most holy word and gain insight into what's happening in this world that's getting crazier and crazier by the day. But mostly we thank your son Jesus for what he did for us on the cross so that by believing in him, we can have the free gift of God, which is the eternal life. We thank you for this and all you provide for us. In Jesus' most precious and holy name, amen. Everything I'm about to share has, in my opinion, prophetic implications. Not only do these events have prophetic implica implications individually, I believe they're also intertwined and are casting a long shadow on upcoming events that are prophesied in the Bible. So please take note of this first one for future reference. With its announced rollout of a device that uses customers' palm prints for identification and payment at physical retail stores, Amazon has released its new Amazon One Palm Scanner that will be used in its point-of-sale system. These devices are presently in use in Amazon's Go stores in Seattle, so they're currently in use with the company wanting to expand it to any retailer willing to partner with the megagiant. Instead of being identified by an account on their mobile phones, Amazon One customers can simply walk into the store, scan their palm, shop for products, and the purchase will be automatically charged to their credit card. And payments aren't the only function Amazon has in mind for the system. Other uses discussed include third-party retailers, someone entering a location like a stadium or badging into work, and for other uses, make mental note of that, because I'm going to bring that up again. 
So if Amazon's use of palm prints for identification and payment systems sounds like something you read out of the book of Revelation, you're correct. The book of Revelation warned us that during the Great Tribulation, every person will be required to accept a mark on their right hand or forehead, which will be necessary for commerce. Revelation 13, 16 to 17 says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Many Christians are rightfully concerned that the acceptance of such technology is conditioning people for the actual, when the actual mark of the beast is implemented. What often starts out as voluntarily, voluntary can just as easily become mandatory. And whereas technology itself may be neutral, in the hands of the wrong person it can be extremely dangerous. Imagine the technology of today in the hands of Hitler. Christians have long debated the meaning of the mark of the beast. It still remains to be seen if the mark will be a digital tattoo, microchips under the skin, or some other form of biometric payment using a hand such as Amazon One. But there's no denying it. Our generation appears to be the first in history to have the technology to fulfill this prophecy. I don't know if you've heard about ID2020, but uh, 13 months ago, ID2020 Alliance launched a new digital identity program. Its alliance partners include Accenture, Gavi, remember this organization, Ideas.org, Microsoft, which is Bill Gates, I'll talk more about him too, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Digital identity is a computerized record of who a person is stored in a registry. It is used in this case to keep track of who has received vaccination, but the unstated end game is it's going to track everybody. Remember Amazon One devices that are used to use a customer's palm prints for identification? One policy advisor has stated, and I quote, we are implementing a forward-looking approach to digital identity that gives individuals control over their own personal information while still building off existing systems and programs. We recognize that the design of digital identity systems, listen to this, carries far-reaching implications for individuals' access to service and livelihoods. And we are eager to pioneer this approach. A partnership was also formed earlier this year between Gavi, remember that name, NEC and Simprints, to use biometrics, again, think Amazon One Hand, partnered with facial recognition the forehead or the face to improve vaccine coverage in developing nations. Commented ID 2020 Executive Director Dakota Gruner, digital ID is being defined and implemented today and we recognize the importance of swift action to close the identity gap. Now is the time for bold commitments to ensure that we respond both quickly and responsibly. We and ID 20, our ID 2020 Alliance partners, both present and future, are committed to rising to this challenge. I repeat, Remember Amazon One devices that use a customer's palm prints for identification and facial recognition. Now, next, we're going to talk about Bill Gates. His three-part plan to eradicate COVID-19. He's also the co-chair and co-founder of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which I'll talk about more coming up too. Bill Gates said, the world is on the brink of a scientific achievement. A safe, effective COVID-19 vaccine will likely be ready early next year. In fact, there will probably be more than one vaccine available. 
This is the development that will fi finally give the world a chance to eliminate the threat of the pandemic and return to normal. Because we can immunize against this disease, governments will be able to lift social distancing measures, people will stop having to wear masks, the world's economy will start running again at full speed. All we've got to do is take a vaccine. But elimination will not happen by itself. To achieve this goal, the first, world first needs three things. And here's just three things. The capacity to produce billions of vaccine doses, the funding to pay for them, and the systems to deliver them. The only way to eliminate the threat of this disease somewhere is to eliminate it everywhere. And the only way to do that is a vast increase the world's vaccine manufacturing capacity. This way we can cover everyone no matter where they live. In addition to the manufacturing capacity to make them, we also need the funding to pay for billions of vaccine doses for poorer nations. This is where the ACT accelerator can help. It is it's an initiative we're supported by organizations like Gavi. Remember Gavi? Not many people have heard of Gavi, but they have spent two decades becoming experts in the task of financing vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics. Now, give me a second here. Now, listen to this. Gavi is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation has made several commitments to Gavi, totaling $4.1 billion. Its website even states the foundation is a key Gavi partner in vaccine mar marketing, market shaping. So he's, he's, he's got it all. So Bill, I'll go back to Phil, Bill Gates with talking now. Pharmaceutical companies have made the financing easier, foregoing profits of any COVID-19 vaccine and agreeing to make them as affordably as, affordably as possible. Now, no, note number two. There is a joint agreement between the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and 16 pharmaceutical companies in which the companies commit to scale up the manufacturing of COVID-19 vaccines and ensure its broad distribution. The companies also commit to using donations for going profits and using tiered pricing to make their products as affordable as possible. Gates was quoted as saying, now listen to this, the commitment is not limited to vaccines, but includes companies such as, remember this for future reference, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, whose COVID-19 vaccine candidates are in advanced stages of development. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. You can see all this stuff's intertwined. So Bill, we'll go back to Bill Gates talking now. Finally, even when the world is manufacturing capacity and funding lined up, we'll need to strengthen health systems, the workers and infrastructure that can actually deliver vaccines to people around the world. With good diagnostics, these workers can also sound the alarm if other disease jumps from a bat or bird a human. Therefore, in eliminating COVID-19, we can also build a system that will help reduce the damage of the next pandemic. So he's already planning for the next one. Now, I talked about advanced testing and COVID on COVID vaccines. Listen to this. COVID vaccine trial participants reports, report serious side effects. At least 41 COVID va vaccine candidates are in human trials worldwide but only four U.S.-backed candidates are in phase three, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. Listen to this, Moderna, Pfizer, remember them? AstraZeneca, remember them? Johnson & Johnson, remember them? Five patients taking part in clinical trials for coronavirus vaccine candidates in the U.S. have experienced intense side effects 
According to a report published by CNBC, high fever, body aches, bad headaches, and exhaustion are just some of the symptoms the participants say they felt after receiving shots. But listen to this. I'll go into more detail in here in a minute on what they actually went through. But four out of the five subjects interviewed by CNBC said they would felt the struggle was worth it to gain protection from COVID-19. Then again, the symptoms certainly sound serious. One participant shared his experience thusly. After getting the first shot on August 18th, I felt a little bit under the weather for several days with a low-grade fever. I got my second shot on September 15th. Eight hours later, I was bedbound with a fever of over 101. Shakes, chills, a pounding headache, and shortness of breath. The pain in my arm where I received the shot felt like a goose egg on my shoulder. I hardly slept that night, recording that my temperature was higher than 100 degrees for five hours. After 12 hours, I felt back to normal and my energy levels returned. Having signed a lengthy consent form, I was aware that I might experience symptoms, but I was still struck by the severity of the duration and tweeted on September 16th that I experienced full-on COVID, COVID symptoms. Two other participants reported similar side effects. One said that he experienced more severe symptoms than he expected. Another woman who was in her 50s said she didn't experience a fever, but suffered a bad migraine that left her drained for a day and un unable to focus. She said she woke up the next day feeling better after taking Excedrin, but added the vaccine company may need to tell people take it, to take a day off after a second dose. I don't know if you noticed or not, but the vaccine, they're saying you have to take two doses now in order to be cured. And so it's just more lies upon lies. She added, you're not going to be lifting weights or working out. If this proves to work, people are going to have to toughen up. The first dose is no big deal. Then the second dose will definitely put you down for the day for sure. You need to take a day off after the second dose. And another participant woke up and listen to this. Another participant woke up in the middle of the night with chills and fever after taking a booster shot, shaking so hard he cracked a tooth. While it's possible some of the symptoms described could have been caused by unrelated illness, Pfizer emphasized that complications like this were only seen in a small number of cases, so no big deal. While other vaccine companies responded by noting that some vaccines are harder on the body than others, and that while the negative reaction in the minority of patients are an unfortunate trade-off, uh, it's not the reason enough to forego taking the vaccine. They have also acknowledged that their vaccine could induce side effects that are similar to symptoms associated with mild COVID-19, such as muscle pain, chills, and headache. As companies progress through clinical trials, several vaccine makers have abandoned their highest doses following reports of more severe case reactions. Regardless, it seems that it's, it's remains to be seen whether kids and pregnant women will experience similar symptoms. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, Dr. Fauci, and the global healthcare establishment work with their allies in the press to try and convince as many people as possible to, take a, to agree to take a COVID-19 vaccine once it's approved. So that's where we are with COVID-19. This next one, uh, Greg talks about it all the time, that we're being lied to and everything like that. And this is kind of along the lines of we're, we're questioning the, 
the science behind things. We're questioning the, the reality of what they're telling us and everything. Ron Paul wrote an article about this. So he says, now think about what I've talked about to this point and how it might apply to what I'll talk about now. In the Soviet Union, it was forbidden to dispute the wisdom of the party line. That's because Marxian communism was viewed as a scientifically inevitable, inevitable progression of mankind. For Marx and Lenin, the science was settled. Have you heard that before? Therefore, anyone speaking out against the science of the Soviet system was acting with malice, was wanting its destruction, was wanting people to die. So anyone voicing opposition to the settled science of Marxism-Leninism soon found their voice silenced, oftentimes permanently. Ironically, just 30 years after the science of Marxism-Leninism imploded for all the world to see, we are witnessing a resurgence here in the U.S. of the idea that to question the science is not seek truth. Does that sound familiar? Or a refined understanding of what appears to be conflicting evidence. No, it is to actually wish harm on one's fellow Americans. And while we who question the science are not being physically carried off the gulags for disputing the wisdom of our betters in the CDC or the WHO, for example, we are finding the outcome is the same. We are being silenced and accused of malicious intent. The Soviet communists called dissidents like us wreckers. Recently, two whistleblowers from inside the CDC and Big Pharma came forward and raised serious and legitimate questions about the prevailing coronavirus narrative. Now, this guy was from Pfizer, mind you, okay? The former chief science officer for the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, Dr. Mike Yeadon, has stated that from his experience, he believes that nearly 90% of the current tests for COVID produce false positives. In other words, they're negative and they're saying they're actually positive, 90%. That means this massive expansion in cases used to justify continued attacks on our civil liberties is simply phony. As Dr. Eden said in a recent interview about the Orwellian UK coronavirus lockdown, are we, are, we, are we basing a government policy, an economic policy, a civil liberties policy in terms of limiting people to six people in a meeting all based on what may well be completely fake data on this coronavirus? If, is Dr. Yearden correct in claiming that based on his scientific observation, there is no second wave? We don't know. But we must know that his chart claims that we must know that his claims that the massive increase in cases in Europe usually justify new lockdowns are not only in any way being matched with a similar increase in deaths. The EU's own charts prove this. Deaths remain a flat line near zero while cases skyrocket to match the massive increase in testing. Do you, do you, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. But when they talk about COVID, especially, I, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the United States, they talk about the cases now. They don't talk about the deaths or hospitalizations. The deaths and the hospitalizations, the flat line, are even going down in a lot of cases. Yet the, case, yet the cases are going way up because of the amount of testing we're doing now. And that's all they concentrate on because what they want to do is they want to foment fear in you, saying, okay, oh, this is bad, this is bad. We've got to listen to what they do. We've got we to buy into what they're telling us. That's, it's nothing but a lie. So last, last week, Dr. Eden's findings were reported on the Liberty Report last week. And for the first time ever, the program was removed by YouTube. 
YouTube, owned by Google, which is firmly embedded into the deep state, was vague in explaining just where their community standards were violated by simply reporting on qualified scientists who happened to disagree with the mainstream coronavirus narrative. But they did offer the shocking explanation. YouTube is not allowed content that explicitly disputes the efficacy of the World Health Organization. Incredible. It's not that the science is settled. What appears to be settled is the impulse to silence anyone who asks why. And then uh, this last one, this was by Jan Markell. I don't know if you saw this or not, but it was really cool what she wrote. So I'm going to just find that one, one last thing to consider. First Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3 tells us, For you yourselves know it full well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. Last days, events are happening quickly, even suddenly. The word quickly, Greek word takos, is used eight times in Revelation. This is where we get our word tachometer. Think of an automobile tachometer which measures the working speed of an engine typically in revolutions per minute, and it revs up. We often see sudden destruction falling upon the wicked in the, in the Bible. The unrepentant living during Noah's time experienced a sudden and catastrophic flood. They had 120 years to repent as Noah preached to them, but they chose to ignore him and judgment suddenly fell. The word suddenly. Have you, what, have you noticed this in 2020? Everything has happened suddenly. Our fairly ordinary word, world suddenly vanished. Stores sold out suddenly. Fear gripped America and the world suddenly. People were ordered to suddenly totally change their lifestyles. People lost businesses of a lifetime suddenly. A U.S. president became the cause of it all suddenly and went to having COVID suddenly. Reality became surreal suddenly. Cities turned into ghost towns suddenly. Mankind became lovers of self, treacherous and without self-control suddenly. Cry for global government transpired suddenly. If only, as if only a one world government could slow down the wreckage. Virtual became a new way of doing things suddenly. The US economy went from the best ever to horrible suddenly. Church went from essential to irrelevant in the eyes of the world suddenly. Hollywood suddenly stopped making sick movies as theaters suddenly closed. Order turned to chaos suddenly with racial tension. That tension suddenly turned to lawlessness and lawlessness suddenly turned to anarchy. The cry for police protection suddenly turned to abolish the police. Common sense simply turned suddenly to strong delusion. That's the case, a, a, a time frame of six short months. All that stuff's happened. So is there a message in all this? Something else will happen suddenly. The rapture of the church. It will take place in the twinkling of an eye. That is so fast it can hardly even be measured. When God begins to move, he doesn't waste a moment. But he takes time to warn before he judges. He gave the people of Noah's time 120 years. And it seems to be over 100 years since the Laodicean church has emerged. How much longer will God give us before the charge in eternity suddenly happens by the rapture of the church? So something to think about.
So, that being said, we'll get to the teaching now. I just want to share that with you. Turn with me into your Bibles to Romans 12, starting with verse 1. While I get a drink of water. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you open up our hearts, minds, and souls today so we may be receptive to what you'll show and teach us. We also ask you open the hearts, minds, and souls of the lost today so that they may come to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask you have your way with us and teach us what we need to hear. In the most precious and holy name of Jesus, amen. We as believers are to be devoted to God. Everything we are and everything we have is to be dedicated to the worship and service of God. Anything less than total devotion is short of God's glory and is sin. Therefore, when discussing our relationship to God, the Bible is strong in its exhortation. Without equivocation, the Bible strongly urges total devotion. Verse 1 starts out, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, with the word emphasis on therefore I'm going to talk about, by the mercies of God. The word therefore launches a new subject for discussion. It connects what is about to be said to what has been said. What the book of Romans has told us up to this point is this. Romans 1, 18 through uh, 3.20 told us that, we, that the world desperately needs to get right with God. Romans 3.21 through 5.21 told us that the, that the way for the world to get right with God is now clearly revealed through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way is justification by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and having God count one's faith as righteousness. Romans 6.1 through 8.39 told us that the, we as believers in Christ can now be sanctified, that is, set apart to God, and set free from sin to life eternal by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Romans 9, 1 through 11, 36 told us that we as believers, both Jew and Greek, slave and free man, male and female, are now God's choice to carry the gospel of his Son to the whole world. This is the glorious message of how God loves us and, how, of, of, and of what God has done for us. And what is meant by the mercies of God? The mercies of God are overflowing. They are beyond anything any person could ever desire. Just think about what God has done for us. God has met, met our desperate need to get right with him, provided the power to set free from the terrible bondage of sin and live eternally, given the most glorious purpose of life. And what is that most glorious purpose of life? That of proclaiming the news of God's Son, of how to, to be set free from sin and death, and to live eternally. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, therefore, 
in the light of the mercies of God, of all this that God has done for us, we must devote ourselves to God. We must dedicate and commit ourselves to Him. Note the words, I beseech you. The word beseech, the Greek word parakaleo, means to implore you, urge you, beg you, to devote yourselves to God. Note a significant point. What is being said and what is about to be said is not being said to the world. That is, not to the lost. It's being directed to us. I beseech you, implore you, urge you, beg you, therefore, brethren. Verse 1 continues, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We are called upon to present. Webster's 1913 Unabridged English Dictionary defines present as to bring or introduce into the presence of someone, especially a superior, offer for acquaintance as to present an envoy to the king, come in the presence of a superior. So we could say that we are to come in the presence of God to offer for acquaintance to him our bodies, the instrument of life, the instrument to which we express ourselves, our bodies a living sacrifice, unlike Old Testament sacrifices, in which animals give up their lives by being killed in a sacrifice. In Leviticus, four kinds of sacrifice where blood is shed are mentioned but I believe they may be reduced to two. The first comprising the sin of offering and the trespass offering being a type of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to obtain a reconciliation with God once we believe in Jesus. And the second comprising the burnt offering and the peace offering being made, uh, I'm sorry, being a type of the living sacrifice we make to God after a reconciliation to him and our service to him and to celebrate it. How do I get there? First, the sin offering and the trespass offering. The sin offering offered a whole bullock being burnt upon the ground outside the camp of Israel after the blood and fat were put into the altar of God. Remember that Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. The offering for sin and pictures The offering was for sin and pictures to us Christ who knew no sin being made sin for us and enduring the judgment and wrath of God against sin in our stead and our, as our substitute. The holiness of God and the awfulness of sin was brought, up, brought out in the bullock, being entirely burnt up outside the camp. It pictures Christ forsaken of God as our sacrificial sin-bearer. Next, next, in the trespass offering, it was looked down as an offering for trespass against God. Amends had to be made for the wrong done. Atonement was made for by the blood offering, and a trespasser was forgiven. This offering presents Christ who died for our sins and trespasses on the cross, restoring that which he did not steal, which is talked about in Psalm 69.4. So if you guys want to go there for a minute, we'll, th we'll camp there for a little bit. Okay, Psalm 69.4. Those who hate me without, without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. There are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I'm, I still must restore it. So Psalm 69 is a prayer of response for persecution, to persecution. According to its heading, David is the author. The personal suffering David endured was prophetic in the suffering of Jesus Christ. In this sense, Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm, one that frequently is quoted in the New Testament. 
In this verse, David proceeded proceed to describe the circumstances that so fiercely oppressed him. Many people hated him without cause and were making false accusations against him, like, just like the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes of Jesus' day. Speaking poetically, David said that the number of his enemies exceeded the number of hairs on his head. For no just reason, they sought to destroy him by spreading vicious lies in an attempt to resolve the situation. David apparently made amends for something he did, had not done. He made restitution for items that he had not stolen, just like Jesus made atonement for sins that weren't his. He would not only answer to God for our sins and our paid our debt by shed blood, he brought more glory to God and more blessings to man than were ever had before sin was committed. So as you can see, the sin offering and trespass offering can be a type of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to obtain our reconciliation with God once we believe in Jesus. Second, the burnt offering and the peace offering. The burnt offering was the highest aspect of the work of Christ where, where he was seen offering himself up entirely to God to do his will even unto death. The whole offering except the skin of the animal was burnt upon the altar and all went to God's sweet savor. It pictures Christ who gave himself as a sacrifice to God for a sweet and smelling savor. Christ is not seen here as bearing our sins, but as accomplishing the Father's will, glorifying him and vindicating the holiness and majesty of his throne. Conversely, our whole person, our entirety, is become a living sacrifice to God. It is more than just presenting. It is more than surrender. We are to be consumed upon God's holy altar of service. And in doing so, we accomplish the Father's will. The peace offering was also an offering of a sweet savor to God. The blood, the fat, and the kidneys of the offering were put upon the altar as the food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord. That was God's part. Then the breast was given to Aaron and his sons and the right shoulder to the offering priest. This was man's part. Thus God and man both fed in the same offering which speaks of communion and fellowship and typifies the communion of which we in Christ enjoy with God on the ground of the work of Christ the cross and his blood shed there for our sins. We are at peace with God throughout through the work of the cross and can feed upon Christ in fellowship with the Father. So as you can see, the burnt offering and the peace offering can be a type of the living sacrifice we make to God after our reconciliation to him and our service to him and to celebrate it. So you may ask, how can we become a living sacrifice? Let your eye look upon nothing evil and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing shameful, and it become a burnt offering. Let your hand do nothing unlawful, and it has become a peace offering. But even this is not sufficient. We need to actively practice doing good. Our mouths must bless them to curse us. Our ears must unceasingly give attention to divine lessons. We must spread the good news. So in the end, let us therefore with our hands and our feet and our mouth and with our other members render glory to God. Like I said earlier, the sacrifice is living in opposition to the Old Testament sacrifices, which were slain animals. We die to nothing but sin that we may live wholly unto Jesus who died for us and rose again. It is more than just presenting. 
It is more than surrender. We must be consumed upon God's holy altar of service, just as the soldier sacrificed himself for his country in time of war. So we are to offer ourselves for the kingdom. This implies a constant sacrifice of the physical for the sake of the spiritual in the sense that Paul speaks, spoke of in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And if you want to turn it, you can. About, I can go ahead and read it. So, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but here is the important part. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest one I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So let's look at the first part of verse 27 for a moment. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. We are not to be controlled by our body. We are to control our body. How? By simply not giving in to it. By asking God's help and denying the body whatever it craves. It's tough at first, but a person can do it simply by giving, not giving, up, giving in. Giving in to carnality. Giving in to sin. A person can do it by refusing to give in. By not doing what, no matter what, no matter what the pain by doing exactly what the disciplined athlete does. And in a few days or weeks, the most glorious thing happens. The body starts to be conquered, brought under control. Therefore, no one will ever be excused for not disciplining his body. We master our own body. The phrase translated discipline means to bruise, to beat back. The word subjection means to enslave, to lead about as a slave. So we are to literally beat back our body and its cravings in order to make it our slave and glorify God in our enslaved body, present our bodies a living sacrifice. And remember, we must also consider that 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that our body actually houses the presence of the God Spirit, also that we are brought with a price with the precious blood of Jesus so that because of that, we are to present our bodies to God. This dedication is not to be made to self, living as one wishes, doing one's own thing. It is not to be made to others, living for family, wife, husband, child, parent, mistress, companion, sexual partner, or employer. It is not to be for something else, houses, lands, property, money, cars, possessions, profession, recreation, retirement, luxury, power, recognition, fame. It's all the world. Our bodies, the vehicle of expression representing the totality of our lives and activities, are to be offered to God and God alone. God wants our bodies to be sacrificed living for Him. We are to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Note that the offering of our bodies is to be sacrificial. I'll repeat that this is just a picture of the Old Testament believers taking animals and offering them to God as sacrifices. We are to make the same kind of sacrificial offering to God. But note the profound difference. Our offering is not to be the sacrifice of an animal's flesh and blood. Our offering and sacrifice is to be with hearts, minds, and souls through our bodies. We are to offer our body as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice means a constant, continuous sacrifice, not just an occasional dedication of one's body. A person does not sacrifice his body to God today and then take his body back into his own hands 
and do his own thing tomorrow. A living sacrifice means that a person's dedication that a person dedicates his body to live for God and to keep on living for God. A living sacrifice means the sacrifice of a person's body wherever that body is. A particular place is not needed. The sacrifice of one's body is a living sacrifice. It can be made while the body is living right where it is, and the offering of a living sacrifice be made right now while the body is living. A living sacrifice means the body sacrifices its own desires and lives for God. The body lives a holy, righteous, pure, clean, and moral life for God. The body does not pollute, dirty, nor contaminate itself with the sins and corruption of the, corruptions of the world. Neither the lust of the flesh, nor the lust of the eyes, nor the pride of life. The believer's body is sacrificed for God and dedicated to live as he commands. A living sacrifice means the body lives for God by serving God. It means the body sacrifices and gives up its own ambitions and desires and it serves God while upon this earth. The body gives itself to the work of proclaiming the love of God and by ministering to a world reeling in desperate needs. The body sacrifices itself to serve God and Him alone. The body is dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. So as you can see, we are to dedicate our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. In the home, church, school, office, plant, field, restaurant, club, plane, car, or bus. No matter where our body is, our bodies be sacrificed for God. Sacrificing to God is not something that is transacted in church. Sacrificing to God is transaction in every act of the human body. The world that is, the whole universe, is a sanctuary of God. As I said, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every act of our body is to be an act of service to God. So now I'm going to actually quote 1 Corinthians 6, 20 that I mentioned before. For you were bought at a price, before glorif therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. Dedication to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God is wholly acceptable to God. The NASB Greek Hebrew Dictionary defines holy as sacred. Webster's Dictionary defines it as set apart to the service or worship of God, hallowed, sacred, reserved from profane or common use. The word acceptable means well-pleasing, approving, and extremely satisfying to God. Can you see what that means? Our bodies are to be holy, set apart to the service and worship of God, hallowed, sacred, reserved from profane or common use, and be acceptable to God well-pleasing, approving, and extremely satisfying to God. This is the very thing for which we should seek, to be holy and acceptable to God. We should seek to cause Him to rejoice. Our bodies should be so dedicated, so pure, holy, and clean, and so committed and involved in serving God that God's heart is just flooded with joy and rejoicing. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The dedication of the body to God is our reasonable service. The word reasonable means rational, intelligent, logical. It is an act of the mind, thinking and figuring out what and how to do something. The word service means worship, ministry. The idea is that we are to use our mind in dedicating our body to the service of God. We are to study the Bible. 
and intelligently think about how to best serve God as we walk through life day by day. Note that this suggests a worship time in God's Word and prayer in every day. All that we got through verse 1. <laughs> so, verse 2 starts out, And do not be conformed to this world. We are not to be conformed to this world. The word conform means to fashion oneself according to or comply to established forms or doctrines or conform to the same pattern or outward, outward form. The word word, world, or age is in its simplest term means the world itself and everything in it. Galatians 1.4 tells us the world is evil. And John tells us Satan is the ruler of this world. The phrase God of this age or God of this world in 1 Corinthians indicates that Satan is the major influence on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. His influence also encompasses the world's philosophies, education, and commerce. The thoughts, ideas, speculations, and false religions of the world are under his control and have sprung from his lies and deception. We are not to be conformed to this world and its ruler. Now note something. Satan wants you to believe the very, that the very fashion appearance of the world is lasting, permanent, and unending. And the world offers the very best of everything, pleasure, enjoyment, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, completeness. However, the fashion and appearance of the world is a lie, a mask, a masquerade. Even the very spirit of the world has within it the seed of corruption. And this seed of corruption is seen in the works of the world and is flesh spoken of in Galatians 5. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, but all these can be broken down into three things that John talks about in 1 John. For, that, for all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. So they're not conformed to this world means that we are not to be felt due to fellowship with the world. Jesus' brother James tells us, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. And Revelation speaks to the world system and a voice from heaven warns Israel to come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. Note one last significant fact about the world, a fact that desperately needs to be considered by the world as well as believers. The world itself and everything in it is passing away. 1 John 2.17 tells us that the world is passing away in lust of it. And 1 Corinthians 7 says that the form of this world is passing away. When someone dies, we refer to that person as having passed or having passed away. Likewise, these verses tell us that the world, that is the world itself and everything in it, is dying. So therefore, we, do not need to, we are not to conform, that is, fashion ourselves after the world, for to do so is to die. Next, Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind of man has been infected by sin. It desperately needs to be renewed. 
The mind is far from perfect. It basically, it's basically worldly. That is selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, centered on this world, centered on the flesh, centered on this life. The Bible is clear about the corruption of man's mind. The human mind has been tragically corrupted by man's sin. Man's mind has become vain, empty, and futile in its imaginations, reprobate, carnal, and full of en en enmity toward God, blinded by Satan unless it believes the glorious gospel of Christ, focused upon earthly things, alienated from God and an enemy of God, fleshly, defiled. So how is a person transformed? The Bible declares as simply as it can be stated, by the renewing of your mind. Our mind is to be renewed, which means to be made new, readjusted, changed, turned around, regenerated. The mind is renewed by the presence and the image of Christ in our lives. The Greek verb trans translated transformed is seen in the English word metamorphosis, and the Greek root of the word is morphe. Morphe means the real being of a man. It is the very nature and es essence, the inseparable part, the unchanging shape of man. The man, is e the man in evening clothes looks different than he does in work clothes, but, but he still is the same inwardly. The elderly man is the same inwardly as he is, as is the young man. What the Bible is saying is clearly evident. We must undergo a radical change within our inner being in order to escape the world and its doom. We must be transformed and changed internally. Our real self, our very nature, essence, personality, inner being, our inner person must be changed. A total change from inside out. 2 Corinthians 3 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Ephesians 4.22 says, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Because there is none righteous, because none seeks after God, we are able to see God only by his grace. Because he lifted the veil from our eyes, we can look into his face. And in doing so, we are changed. We are changed not by a program, a practice, or a procedure. We are changed by a person. We are changed by looking at Jesus, by spending time with him, learning about him, and worshiping him. As your mind keeps on being made new by the spiritual input of God's word, prayer, and fellowship, your lifestyle keeps on being transformed. And we're transformed in our minds and we are made more like Christ. We come to improve and desire God's will, not our own will for our lives. Then we discover that God's will is what God's will is what is good for us, and that it pleases God. And it is complete in every way. It is all we need. By only being renewed spiritually can we ascertain, do, and enjoy the will of God. When a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord, the man is spiritually born again, made into a new man, made into a new creature, given the mind of Christ, and changed into the image of Christ. What this means is the most wonderful truth and it is easily seen. When a person receives Christ Jesus into his life, he receives the mind and the image of Christ as well. Christ places his mind into the believer's mind. That is, Christ changes the believer's mind to focus upon God. In addition, he stamps his image upon the person. Whereas our mind and image used to be centered upon the world, 
They are now centered upon spiritual matters. Our mind and image are renewed, changed, and turned around and regenerated to focus upon God. However, it is critical to remember that only Christ can renew the human mind and image. Only Christ can implant the mind and image of Christ within a person. Only Christ can give his thoughts and the spirit to live out his thoughts to a person. So with all this in mind, we are to be live a transformed life. That is, we are to walk day by day by renewing our minds more and more. We are to allow the Holy Spirit to focus our mind more and more upon God and spiritual things. We are to love the Lord with all our minds. Keep our mind upon spiritual things, not on carnal things. Cast down the imaginations and every thought that interrupts our knowledge of God and to captivate every thought for Christ. Not to let our mind be corrupted. Not to fulfill the desires of the flesh and the mind. Not to walk as the world walks in the vanity of our mind. Be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Let the mind of Christ be in him by walking by humbly before God and men. Think only upon the things of a praise and virtue. Live by the laws of God, which God has put into our mind. And arm, our, <coughs> me, arm ourselves to the same mind as Christ in bearing suffering. Paul then added that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The reason why we are to be transformed is extremely significant. We must prove the will of God. The root word prove means both to find and to follow God's will. This is certainly understandable. If our mind is not renewed and focused upon God, how can we ever find or discover and know the will of God, ever follow or fo obey or do the will of God? The only conceivable way we could ever find and follow God's will is to focus and keep our mind upon God and upon the things of God. Note also how the will of God is described. We'll stop there for a second. Note also how the will of God is described. Meditating upon the threefold description stirs us to crave after God's will. God's will is said to be good, beneficial, rich, bountiful, suitable, moral. It's acceptable, pleasing, satisfactory, welcomed. It's perfect, without error or mistake, flawless, complete, absolute, free from any need, short of nothing, completely fulfilled. We gain victory over the world by renewing our minds more and more. We must focus our mind upon God and the things of God. We must focus our mind upon living and moving and having our being in God. Learn to concentrate upon God and the things of God. Mentally practice the presence of God. And consider Martha's favorite verse. You know, Martha knows what it is. <laughs> Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Christ died to deliver us from this world. The world is crucified to us, and we are crucified to the world. It would be absolute disloyalty to Jesus for us to love the world. Anyone who loves the world is an enemy of God. We are not to be of the world any more than Christ is of the world. However, we are to be sent to the world to testify that, it works, that its works are evil, 
and that salvation is available to all those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not only be separated from the world, we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which means that we should be thinking of the way God thinks as revealed in the Bible. Then we can experience the direct guidance of God in our lives, and we will find that instead of being distasteful and hard, His will is good and acceptable and perfect. Heavenly Father, the secret of living a holy life boils down to you having control of our minds, our bodies, and our wills. And the first step is having at, to having that is asking you to have our desires become our desires. We want you to be in absolute control of all that we have and all that we are. We want our minds to be renewed by the transforming power of your word so that the new person in the inside is permitted to live on the outside. Help us to discover and surrender to your will for our lives and live holy lives. Help us get serious about this thing of dying to self and serving you. Please transform us in our, transform us in our lives into an awesome thing in your hand. Give us your power to do this by helping us to die to self, surrendering our wills to you and obeying you. We ask this in the most precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Lord be with you. And that concludes today's message on Who Am I? with Pastor Greg Tyra of Harvest Chapel in Williamsport, Indiana. If you're in the area, we would love to have you as our guest. Harvest Chapel is located at 418 Old State Road 28, Williamsport, Indiana 47993. We meet for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. Our prayer meetings meet Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. Our Bible study meets on Friday at 7 p.m. Today's and previous messages are available on CD. If you would like a copy, please call 765-404-7203. We look forward to seeing you again next time on Who Am I? Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Because I